When you were a kid, what was the major punishment in your house for bad behavior? Did you get grounded? Extra chores? No TV privileges? Did your parents just make you feel really crummy by telling you that they weren't mad, but disappointed? Wait, so you weren't sent to a bizarre work camp in the middle of the Texas desert and asked to dig a giant hole every day under a blazing sun? Hmm, weird. For children of the 90s and beyond, and also Shia LaBeouf fans, it's already abundantly clear that I've just revealed the fate of Stanley Yelnats, the main character of Louis Sakar's 1998 middle-grade novel, Holes. A critical and commercial success, Holes is the story of the all-too-unlucky Stanley, who finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, is mistakenly accused of a crime, and winds up at Camp Green Lake, a juvenile detention center where, yes, so-called bad boys are expected to dig giant holes on a daily basis. At Camp Green Lake, the lovable loner Stanley encounters a new community of kids from a variety of backgrounds. He has to prove himself to his fellow campers and figure out how to survive the terrifying rule of the camp's adult staff. He befriends Zero, a boy who has been written off by everyone and whose life Stanley tries to save, which spurs him on a rescue mission through the desert that connects him to previous generations of his family, leads him to discover a lost treasure, and gives him a chance to prove that he's innocent and that Camp Green Lake is a scam. It's a great adventure story at heart, and it's no wonder that it's been so popular for so many years, though there are some heavier themes of race, class, and the prison industrial complex that we'll get to as well. This week's guest is Kevin T. Porter, a writer and comedian and the host of the Gilmore Guys and Good Christian Fun podcasts. I've been a huge fan of Kevin's ever since I got into podcasts a few years ago. Gilmore Guys was probably my first ever favorite pod, and it is crazy exciting to welcome him to SSR. I may or may not have been a little starstruck during our recording. I'll include links to Kevin's shows in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com listen, so go check those out and follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin T. Porter. As Manuary comes to a close, I just wanted to acknowledge some great conversation that's been going on in my DMs over the last few weeks. I planned Manuary as a theme month because I loved the wordplay, but I think it's important for me to share on mic that SSR is welcoming to non-binary guests all year round. I appreciate the social media followers who have engaged in really positive discussion with me recently about how our community of book lovers can remain loving, open, and inclusive, even with an alternate title like Shit She Read. One of my favorite things about this community is its inclusivity, and I intend to keep it that way. If you have additional thoughts on this subject, feel free to reach out. You can follow and connect with SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Thanks to all of our Patreon members for supporting the show. If you're interested in committing just a few dollars per month to SSR in exchange for awesome perks like bonus episodes, tote bags, free shipping on merch, and a monthly newsletter, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRPodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. Thanks so much in advance for all of your help. Every dollar makes a difference. Okay, listeners, time to wrap up our first ever manuary. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. 
Hello. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure to be here. No pressure, but you are the finale of Manuary, our first ever Manuary. Yeah, I'm the finale. So like I'll either be super satisfying or I'll leave people kind of wanting more and like, eh, will I check out the next season of the show? I guess. I hope so. But let's hope for the former more than the latter. Well, really, the pressure then is back on me, because if you're going to leave the people wanting more, then I need to continue to like yeah, you have to give ball- people what they're wanting. Yeah, I really have to knock it out of the ballpark until next January, assuming we even do January, assuming I even make it that long. So I guess this is really on me at this point. Yes. Do you do you tend towards like more female guests on the show anyway? We do all female guests. So Manuary was just kind of this fun, you know, kitschy thing I thought would be fun to do to bring on some guys. But I've had so much fun with it. And I have a feeling it's going to make a reappearance next year. We'll see. This is this must be what women feel like all the time, where now I'm feeling the sense of me in Manuary. My gender is but a novelty to you. Yeah. <laughs> but this is what men, women must feel all the time in literally every industry. Yeah, I hope you feel uncomfortable and sort of being judged. And I just hope it's like really not a great place for you so that you understand how we feel the rest of the time. Oh, yeah. Time's up for me, for sure. So we're talking about holes. And I have a lot of feelings about the book already that we'll get into. But before we get there, what's your personal history with holes? Did you read it when you were a kid? Why did you decide to pick this one of the four books that I sent your way? Well, I believe I'd read this one before, although uh, unfortunately, as you'll maybe find out in the course of this podcast, I have an issue with retention of the things that I read. I feel like if I read a book once... And there's not something that I've highlighted three times and then put in a notebook full of notes that it is difficult, especially with fiction, it's difficult for me to retain it after the first reading. Um, I remember stuff from Harry Potter because I read it and I saw the book. So it's kind of like reading it twice in a way. But with Holes, I remember first reading it not as a child, but as a man child in college. Okay. I took a class called Children's Literature and the something, 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 because college classes had to have like five words in them for their title. And Holes was one of the books. And I have have very specific memories. I have specific memories of reading the book at the Perry Castaneda Library at University of Texas in Austin and checking it out and the artwork and stuff. And I'd never seen the movie either. And this was well after the movie. This was like 2007 or 2008. And I just remember really enjoying it. And I remember too... I really enjoyed that author because Sakaro also wrote uh, a lot of the sideways stories from Wayside School books. And I remember oddly connecting to those very, very much uh, when I was a kid in elementary school. But Holes for me, um, it was one of those like <laughs> that children's literature class is where I first discovered a lot of like that's the first time I read Harry Potter was like as a 19 year old in in college. It wasn't as a kid growing up like most people did. Uh, so Holes was was a part of that education as well. First of all, I'm jealous about this children's literature class, which I, as I've done this podcast, I've learned that a lot of people took classes like that. And I sort of feel like extremely unqualified knowing that those classes may have been available to me and I I just didn't take them. So I kind of like to go back and take those classes because they sound like they could be really cool. That class was really spectacular because, I mean, one, there was the thing of like, I'm, you know, a sophomore or whatever. I don't want too much workload, blah, 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 blah. But, but really in taking the class and then actually 
doing all the assigned reading and stuff, it really gave me such a appreciation for like kids books and not even this, which is like, uh, like what's the technical classification genre of this? It, it's not young adult. It's younger than that. It's right? like middle grade probably. Oh, okay. So middle grade books, so middle grade books, but even like picture books and, yeah. and things geared towards a younger audience you have to be really good to put those together. I like there's this cynical strain that runs through a lot of children's entertainment where it's like just slap a thing on, make the guy go honk, and then kids will eat it up. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, hashtag Paw Patrol or whatever. I've never seen Paw Patrol. That's a bad example. But but what the class did is like it actually examining even if it was like a 25 page picture book where it was just a paragraph on each page. It was like the construction of those things and the way that um, authors used form and structure and metaphor, even in like the most sparse ways, it really gave me a big appreciation for that form. So I encourage any of your listeners, if if they have the opportunity, even if it doesn't apply to their major, to take a children's literature class if it's available. Take one online. I'm sure there's a bunch online. Yeah, true. I just, the more I read books written for kids as an adult for this podcast, the more I realize that it must be pretty stressful to be an author for kids because it's like you can't mess anything up and and at least now maybe it's because I'm going over things with such a fine tooth comb but I'm like everything in this book can mean something and can really screw a kid up if it's read the wrong way so there's something that feels it's so significant to me like so many books mean so much to kids and so it's like a higher pressure situation I think if you want to write for kids you really have to get everything right and it has to work at all kinds of levels so I think that's kind of interesting I know which is wild to think about like for most of us and especially now with like peak everything and peak tv and peak music and all this stuff it just feels like you know another brick in the wall sometimes the stuff that we put out there and make but but if you think about the way children consume I mean it's probably changed now now that we give like you know two-year-olds iPhones at the dinner table and stuff but (laughs) if you think about the way they consume it now when they're in it that's all that there is like their attention is just on it so everything you make which you know some people may or may not have more of a tossed off attitude about could end up being super formative for a kid which is yeah uh, mostly terrifying (laughs) yeah it's like i mean there's probably a lot more ways to get this wrong than there is to get this right yeah that's true and it could end up being dissected on a podcast 20 30 years later as we are going to do now Oh, that's right. There we go. So my history with Holes is I definitely read it as a kid. It came out in 1998. I would have been eight-ish. So I probably read it shortly after that. I pretty much read everything that was in the library, and I vaguely remember reading it. I remember thinking that it was like kind of a boy book, which is like a whole other conversation to be had about like the way that we're raised to think like something's a girl book or a boy book or whatever. And, And then I sort of forgot about it for a while. I remember being very excited about the movie because of Shia LaBeouf. And, you know, he was like such the heartthrob at the time. And obviously I went to see it. But for me, the more recent memory of Holes, and I'm going to call my little sister out for this, is that one of my sisters, our like family kind of folklore about Holes is that for like probably four or five years, 
she somehow managed to use holes every single time she was assigned a book report in school. She (laughs) wrote so many book reports about holes. And it was like the running joke that that was the only book that she ever seemed to read for school. Wow. They talk about artists who write the same song over and over again, just using different lyrics and music. But your sister did that just with a book report, but it was literally the same book report over and over again. Yeah. She was just like extremely passionate about holes, I guess. So like, I feel like my personal relationship with holes has sort of been like eclipsed by her relationship with holes over the last couple of years. So reading it myself, I was like, okay, so this is what it was really about. Still not sure how you wrote so many book reports about it, but glad you picked Elaine and stuck with it. Well, you know what? You know, in your sister's defense, not that she needs me as her defense, I would say that Holes is pretty loaded with like, I could think of six or seven different kinds of book reports you could do. Like what Holes says about the prison industrial complex, what Holes says about race in this country, what Holes says about the criminal justice. Like you could do, you could find different, uh, different angles to it, I think, if you wanted to. Totally, which I realize now, but having only read it as like a nine-year-old and talking to her about it, I was very confused about how it had given her so much momentum over so many years of school. But yeah, so reading it now, and I did a lot of research about it, there's an incredible amount of articles available online about holes that kind of blew my mind. There's a lot out there for anybody who wants to check it out, and I'll include links to some of the articles that I read in the show notes for those who want to read more. But one of the things that kind of stressed me out while I was reading it and then after and I wonder if you experienced this at all was kind of this like there were sort of two tracks that the book was working on the one track was it was like silly and goofy Stanley Yelnats his name is a palindrome all Mm -hmm. these like weird bits about pigs and bad luck and like there's a kid named armpit and all that kind of humor And then there's the second track that it's working on where, as you alluded to, it's really this deep analysis of the prison industrial complex. Yes, written for kids, but it's also about these very important issues like like prison, like race, like class. And so I think while I was reading it, I kept finding myself like going back and forth and I couldn't figure out if I, am I supposed to be laughing right now? Am I supposed to be learning something? And I think that sort of like changed my reading experience because I kept being taken out of the moment of reading it because I couldn't figure out how I was supposed to feel about it. Does that sound, does that reflect your experience at all? Uh, yeah, I get what you're saying in that. Like there's a lot of, uh, goofy, (laughs) you know what? This actually reminds me of my hot take on a star is born (laughs) recently because it felt like the first like two thirds of that movie are like super like fairy tale, broad, very uh, broad brush strokes with how everything is dealt with. It's almost like musical logic or dream logic. Uh-huh. And then the last third of the movie, there's some no spoilers, really heavy stuff that's still dealt with with really broad brush strokes that just feels strange because of the delicacy and the fragility of, of those sorts of topics. So there can be some cognitive dissonance when viewing that. And I guess in reading Holes too, I think though with Holes, I didn't feel that like push and pull as much because I didn't feel like Sakar or the book was being that flippant about mm. any of the things. And I think if you were to put yourself again, when you were like a five or six or seven year old reading it, that you would not be like, oh, well, that's weird. Like, why did he say that? It would just be like, I think it would go down pretty smooth. I mean, one of the things as an adult that struck out to me it wasn't so much like, oh, there's like this weird mix of tone, 
but just um, I think <laughs> was the sense of just, oh, this is super illegal what they're doing. Yeah. And usually, I mean, my memory of a lot of kids' books reading them is that like grownups are the bad guy because they want to ground us and, you know, we don't want to go to school. But in this, it's literally, oh, this is kind of a slave camp. Like this is like this is probably in violation of state law, federal law. Like there's a lot of uh, legal <laughs> things. Right. Everything's wrong with this. The fact that these boys who are like, quote unquote, they're bad boys being turned into good boys and they're being sent to this camp where they're asked to dig one hole every day that's like five feet wide, five feet deep. And there's it's just relentless. It's so cruel and so disturbing at every level. Yeah, but I think when you're a kid, it wouldn't feel like that. Did it feel like that to you when you read it when you were a kid? No. Were you like, oh, this is messed up? I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I like I wonder if part of how you read it is you know, how you read it this time around is because like the first time you read it, you were already like, as you said, a man child, you know, an adult, mm-hmm. um, because I remember reading it the first time and it, it went down. The whole thing went down really smoothly. Like I definitely picked up on sort of the funnier vibes, like the wordplay. There's all of these fairy tale components and it drew me in. I'm sure I read it very quickly and I didn't really like question a lot of the the bigger topics that were at hand, obviously because I was nine and like those things weren't really top of mind for me at the time. But I also, it was like you said, I mean, everything sort of, it was clear that the bad guys were bad, the good guys were good. So I think it was handled well, but I think maybe part of why the experience this time around was so jarring was because all of that was so over my head when I was a kid that I just like read it as silly and fun when I was eight or nine. Yeah. Well, I think this has to do with uh, the way that a lot of, and as you know, as someone who puts out a podcast every week, the way that a lot of discourse has changed and shaped now where I think there's something in us that there's a particular almost spidey sense that we need to use or sometimes we feel like we need to use about anything that's made, I'll say before 2016, Mm -hmm. we have to put it through this filter of like, is this actually bad? And I need to tell everyone I think it's bad. Like it's morally wrong or it's not progressive. Is there some like horrific gender stuff going on in this? And the answer to a lot of this is, yeah, there probably is for a lot of this stuff. Uh, but, but I think that's like an extra sensitivity that we've all developed now for those of us that have to talk about things publicly on a regular basis. We do have to filter this through, even if we're enjoying it and, and we don't want to like, sometimes things, sometimes things are pretty blatant and stick out like a sore thumb in a good way. But sometimes things you have to hunt down a little bit. Like, is this actually bad? And I don't sense that it's bad. You know, it's like seeing three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri for the first time. If you think it's good, well, really examine that. Why yeah. did you was good and really chase that down. So I think it would make sense that you would want to do that with this book too. Cause I felt that too, like certain things where I'm like, Oh, is this, wait, this is, but the book's saying it's bad. Right. Right. And making the distinction between like what the book is condoning or endorsing and what the book is using as like a negative example. Yeah. I think you're so right. I do sometimes feel like I'm just hyper aware of things that could 
be perceived as bad in any book that I'm going to talk about on the podcast. And it was interesting because I was just, as I said, doing some research. And I mean, the book was hugely successful. It was a critical success. It was a commercial success. It won the 1998 National Book Award for Young People's Literature. It won the Newbery Award in 1999. It still is hugely successful. In 2012, School and Library Journal ranked it number six among all-time children's novels. So it's continued to sell. People continue to enjoy it. And in sort of like comparing what was out there about Holes when it came out in 1998 to what's out there about it now is fascinating. So the New York Times Book Review, which came out along with the book in 1998, is glowing. And it talks a little bit about like the darker parts of the book. And then the reviewer goes on to say, sounds grim, doesn't it? Nope, it's funny. Sakar inserts humor that gives the suspense steep edges. The tone is as full of surprises as the plot. And then she goes on to talk about how it's a great read aloud book for families. And it's just sort of like highlights kind of like the funny elements. Fast forward to 2018, and I found this extremely interesting but pretty disturbing write-up in Bustle from last year called What Holds by Louis Sakar Taught Me About Justice, Race, and the Prison Industrial Complex. Hey. Uh-huh. And it is chock full. Like, we could probably talk for a full hour about what this writer breaks down from the book about like I'm telling you it could be an hour I'm going to try to find one quote to sort of sum up what she is saying she wrote holes may not capture every nuance of the school to prison pipeline and it may not suggest any actionable ways to abolish prisons outside of fine buried treasure and break the pig curse it may not even be a book about math as my teacher alleged but still holes is a bold message about the injustice of our justice system it's an exploration of imprisonment and labor that children can understand so yeah let's contrast that to what people were saying about in 1998 Mm -hmm. and what the New York Times was writing about in 1998. And if anybody's going to sort of like have a hot take, it's the New York Times. So I think to your point, the way that everybody is talking about it has sort of had to change with the Times. And so after reading those two like very different perspectives today, it sort of like kind of tempered the way that I was feeling about the book after I read it a few days ago. Yeah. And and again, part of that is like problematic policing. But then another part of that is almost like one of the easiest shortcuts to a hot take is <laughs> is saying this good thing you like is actually bad mm. or this bad thing that you dislike is actually good so whenever possible and especially for something as loud as holes i'm sure it would behoove people that need like a fresh piece about it to see like okay how can i like you know, undermine this in some way. So I get it. Like, but the thing is too, I wonder, and I haven't read those pieces, but I wonder even from the titles and I wonder what, how Sakar would see this too, what his purpose was Mm -hmm. in playing with those themes. Because I think sometimes too, there's an expectation we have of like, okay, well, if we're going to talk about race and the prison industrial complex and masculinity in America. And because uh, Stanley is described as overweight, let's talk about obesity too. I think sometimes there's an expectation in 2018 that if you play with the theme that you must not only ask the questions, but give the answers too. Mm. So it's a closed loop in terms of like thematic context. When I think sometimes people just like using them as paint colors on a canvas. So it's like, Oh, you know, I have kind of half of idea for prison stuff. And I think this is sort of interesting. So I'm going to use it for this part of the book. Oh, I have something to say about like racial stuff. And I definitely want to use that as like a source of conflict and backstory for 
green light camp. So I'm going to use it a little bit here. But I think now if you do that, but then you don't also by the end of it resolve and here's how we should all feel about it, that sometimes people can critique that. And there's there's certainly ways in which you can do that irresponsibly. And there are questions you can ask that if you don't answer them are irresponsible. Like, what if Nazis have a good point? Like, that would be an irresponsible question. But I think I think sometimes we put a little too much pressure on our artistic content to kind of give us the answers in this sense, which I um, I appreciated about this book is is I think even reading it now, I wasn't looking at it for, I, I was more admiring it for mm-hmm. the ways in which it could be conversant in all those things. And it inflected what could just be like totally just silly billy, broad brushstrokes, fairy tale stuff with like some reality and like, oh, of course he got pulled over because he's black. And oh, of course he got treated this way and blah, blah, blah. And and how, how injustice works. Like I thought that was an interesting way that made it actually age pretty well. I didn't think that any of the stuff that the book was getting at, even in 2018 was like, Ooh, well, that didn't go, you know, that doesn't look so good now. I, I thought, I thought it all made it age a little bit better in some ways. Yeah, I agree. I actually, I mean, to clarify when I was reading it, I definitely wasn't contextualizing it in terms of the prison industrial complex. I think I just felt like something was bugging me about it. And I think part of it is just like, maybe I don't like the book as much now as I did when I was a kid. And that's normal. Like this is a book written for middle graders. And I just think there were parts of it that in the way that things from this book shouldn't have sat right with me, like the fact that he was at this like kind of fucked up labor camp was not sitting right with me. You know, there were a lot of things about that weren't sitting right with me. And then reading some of the discourse that's been written about it in more recent years made me be like, oh, okay, well, maybe that's why it bothered me. Maybe it's because I now live in this world where we're talking about these things. But I agree, in reading the book, um, I didn't have this overwhelming sense that the author had like an agenda of any sort or had like a specific sort of point of view that he wanted to express in any sort of a strong way. I think he's a great author and, you know, separate from all of these issues, it's a really well done book that I think is worth talking about like beyond all the other stuff. Although that's like certainly interesting in 2018. Like as a writer myself, I, I think the fact that he will like all these storylines together from different time periods with all of these different characters who are somehow connected through their families. It's really cool. And the fact that he was able to pepper in some of these bigger issues, which, you know, maybe teachers can use in their classrooms to talk about race or to talk about the way that we address people that look different than we do. I think that's, you know, the the icing on the cake if kids are reading this in school, but it's a great book. And I, I understand why kids have enjoyed it for so long. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that struck me in reading it, uh, even with all the stuff we're talking about is just, wow, it felt so brutal because it just feels like Stanley keeps getting beaten down over and over and over again. Because even I have like this cultural impression that's stronger in my memory than the actual content of the book of like holes and a Shia LaBeouf and yeah. his like peak adorableness and what a fun romp. And then this thing is just like adults spitting on kids and getting slashed in the face with snake poison. Right. It is so harsh. And at some points I was like, wow, this, you know, I, I think I read this basically when I reread it, I read it in like two sittings Uh in the same day. But, but even still like parts of it were hard to get through just uh, not because the book was bad, but just because it felt so unrelentingly 
brutal and punishing towards its um, children protagonists. Yeah, and Stanley came from like a tough time anyway. He didn't need to go to this camp to be miserable. His his life yeah. was hard. He was poor. His dad was struggling. They were going to get evicted from their home because his dad, who's an inventor, was trying to like come up with some way to make feet smell less bad. And so in doing that, like the whole apartment smelled bad. And so the landlord's going to kick them out. Like things were already rough enough for this kid. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I, I don't know. I wonder if it would have been a better book if he hadn't struggled as much before. Oh, because okay. because if it was like, like it, that was his arc, because in a way, Stanley doesn't really have an arc as a protagonist. He's just kind of like the same solid guy throughout. His circumstances have an arc, but he does not, which is not necessarily a criticism because a lot of great stories, the protagonist doesn't change from beginning to end. Sometimes like the audience changes or someone else in the story changes or the circumstances change. But he's not that different in terms of his like inner sense and character from page one that he is at the end. It would have been cool if he was, like, this rich kid who was used to all the luxuries and then he was really, like, kicked to the bottom at this camp and had to be content with less. That would have been, like, a very cool spin on it for sure. And then the think pieces would have been what Holes is saying about class and our, our wealth gap in America. And we're still upset about it 20 years ago. 20 That's years right. later, it's still upsetting us what they had to say in 1998. <laughs> the thing that was interesting about Stanley too, that like it kind of broke my heart at the beginning. And you know, to, to your point about class, like I think on page three or four, there's already a note about like Stanley came from a poor family. He had never been to camp, like period, end of sentence. That might even been the end of the chapter. And that kind of broke my heart because it was like, maybe there's a part of him that thinks this is going to be fun. And they talk about how like when he was little, he used to pretend that all of his stuffed animals were going to a place called Camp Fun and Games, which is just so sweet and earnest. And obviously he finds himself in like the very opposite of Camp Fun and Games where he's digging holes every day and like being abused by wardens. But at the end of the story, then when he's having this adventure with Zero and like saving Zero's life, there's a moment where he was like, there's not really anywhere else that I would rather be. Like, I know that this is a bad spot and I definitely like would wanted to go home at a certain point, but right now, like this is where I should be. And that I think says so much about him in the fact that he is this earnest kid and he like wants to do the right thing, but he goes from this place where he has nothing going into the camp. And then at the end, he's like, you know, at least I have a friend now. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my favorite parts of the book was like that exact line. Like, no, I wouldn't rather be anywhere else. So I, might have been part of his internal monologue. Yeah, that was very touching to me. Yeah, I'm baking in the desert. Um, We've been eating onions for three days. I have no idea when I'm going to get to go home, but I really like you, and this is where I'd like to be. The onion stuff is great because I love anytime there's like IP, like any TV show or movie or book where there's where there's a uh, specific food attached to it. So like with the rest of development, frozen bananas. Or uh, I'm forgetting like 20 other examples, but I, w- I would love to like go to Holes Con 2019 and everyone's got like, they're waving their onions above their heads and they're throwing them onto the stage and everything is like an onion themed uh, dish that everyone has for dinner. Like it's great from a marketing perspective when you can tie that in. I wonder if they, I mean, obviously the marketing didn't really work like that when the, when the movie came out, but I wonder if it, if it did now, it would have been more like that. Yeah, there would have been like an Instagram campaign where it was like hashtag your onion with like, I love holes. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, that would have been so good. Well, because the idea is that the onions have healing power. So for those who haven't read the book in a while, which, you know, totally understand, one of the parallel stories with Stanley's plight at Camp Green Lake is that the woman who would go on to become Kiss and Kate Barlow, the outlaw who stole Stanley's grandfather's money, falls in love in the 19th century, you know, years and years and years ago, near Camp Green Lake with Sam, um, a black man who sells onions and tells all of the people in the town about the healing powers of his onions. And the people come to realize that he's right. Um, again, sort of these fairy tale elements where like the people realize that the what the doctors are doing, it's not as helpful to them as what Sam's onions can do. So they start buying his onions and using them to heal all of their medical problems. And Kate Barlow, who is the school teacher, falls in love with Sam. And there's this like very sad moment where, you know, they're caught kissing in an alleyway somewhere, I think. And there's a mob that decides to burn down the schoolhouse where Kate teaches. And so they decide to elope, to run away. And then things become extremely upsetting um, where the boat is shot down or there's a mob that continues to chase them and Sam dies. He gets lynched in the book, which I completely forgot about that. I think in my memory, I like completely forgot about like the racial element of everything. Like it, it, not even like that it didn't exist, but I just didn't have a strong memory of it, which now is just not the case. And something that brutal happening just sticks in your mind a little bit more. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like when you're a kid, I mean, again, you, you didn't read it when you were young, young, but I read it when I was young and I don't know if maybe it's again, one of those like innocent things about being a kid where like I didn't necessarily attach to the idea of Sam being black. Like I just was like, Oh, this is the man that Kate loves. And you know, maybe he, maybe people just don't like him because he sells onions and that's kind of weird. I, I just didn't attach to the idea of a race being part of the equation when I was younger. And so coming back to it as an adult, I was like, Oh, this is really, this is really upsetting that that's like one more part of the equation that causes this like tragic end for him. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I've not seen the movie, but I do have, for some reason, such a strong sense memory of Dulé Hill saying, I can fix that and fixing all of the teacher's stuff in her classroom. And so in my head, I'm picturing sweet Charlie Young, Dulé Hill doing all this stuff. And it made it even more heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, and I remember in the movie, a lot of the other thing maybe that was more striking in terms of race for me, maybe with the book and definitely with the movie was the, a lot of the kids at the camp were black. And I remember in the book noticing that a lot of Stanley's fellow campers were like called out as being black or from families that maybe didn't have a lot of money. You know, it was much clearer to me as a kid that the children came from different kinds of backgrounds, whereas maybe I just like read past it with the with the adult characters. But the fact that Sam is black is like a huge deal because like you said, like what really happens is that he's lynched when they're trying to run away so that Mm -hmm. they can elope and be together. And later on in the book, sort of near where all of this happens, Stanley and Zero come across a field of onions, kind of like bringing Sam's legacy into the future where it actually like goes on to heal them and to save their life. It fixes them as, you know, his refrain the whole the whole time he's courting Kate Barlow is like, I'll fix this, I'll fix this. His onions could fix everything. And so all of these years later, his onions like actually fix Stanley's situation as well and like allows them to live on so that they can go home. And one thing, uh, like speaking of like set up payoff in parallel, I thought they were going to put a finer point on the idea of Stanley's literally dragging Zero up the hill 
like his great great grandfather never did to the what's described as a gypsy woman in the book. Yeah. I thought that they were going to like put a, a finer point on like, and then he he took him up to the upstream, blah blah blah, and then the curse was broken x amount of years later. But they never really did that. Yeah, and I'll be honest, that that whole connection went totally over my head for longer than it should have this time around. Like it took me. I'm a grown-up. I understand that. (laughs) And things that probably the author expected kids to figure out before it was, like, explicitly mentioned, I did not figure out. I don't know if, I mean, I was reading this over the holidays. I was traveling a lot, like, not sleeping. I don't know if I, like, blacked out while this was happening. But it took me until the end where it was like, oh, they have the same last name. And then, you know, there was a moment where I think they sort of, Sakar wraps it up in one sentence where he was like, and finally, you know, the descendant of Elia Yelnats is carrying a descendant of Madame Zeroni. And then I was like, okay. But I think I didn't connect Zero's last name as Zeroni to Madame Zeroni. I don't know why. I just didn't remember her. And you're right. I think it wasn't really that clear. You would think that that would have been a more dramatic moment. Yeah. Well, and it was funny, too, as the book was going on, it almost felt like The Force Awakens or something where it's like, is everyone just everybody's son or daughter? Like, is this is this the twist for everything? Yeah. Everybody's a descendant of someone else. So, like, the warden is also a descendant yeah. of someone. Like, somehow, all of these descendants of all of these people that were in each other's orbit in the 19th century end up at this camp in Texas. And obviously, like, some of them were from there, but, like, a lot of their families had moved away. Zero doesn't really even have a family anymore like it you know you have to suspend the disbelief and it is kind of funny that the premise is that like yes you will all find each other in the future what was like the best thing for you this time around like what did you what elements what themes did you enjoy the most did you have a favorite character like a favorite moment I know you mentioned you loved that part at the end where Stanley realizes that he doesn't want to be anywhere else but was there anything else in particular that like really jumped out to you well I will say when the justice came at the end and they took the kid at least zero and Stanley out of the camp it was so satisfying because I was just, yeah, I was so anxious about how much injustice there was in the book up to that point. But also, I think the book is fairly well paced. I thought the way that it played with time and flashing back and forth to things, they did a really good job with in a way where I never felt lost. And, and I'm not, I, I love reading books, but I'm not like a huge reader. And it's even rare for me, even with like a kid's book, to be able to read it in, in just one or two sit- settings, even like a middle grade book like this. But, but I thought it was really, really well paced. And, and I appreciated how, yeah, just almost how seamless the time stuff in the book worked. And because when it started and I had like truly the the reaction of like a middle grade reader when I was reading, I was like, is this all there is? It's just a camp where there's holes in it. And then as it unraveled, I thought all that stuff was just really, really well done. I agree. One of the blog posts that I was reading about, you know, like the top 10 things that I loved about holes, one of the things that was on the list was that it's exactly the right length and it ends where it should. And I I think that's so true because having read a lot of these like middle grade and YA books over the last couple of months, sometimes they go on a little too long or like the action sequences are too long. Um, And I'm sure authors think that kids eat that stuff up and maybe they do. But like this is I think this is like such good writing because it gives the right details. Um, everything has a purpose. 
every detail is sort of like reawoken at the end. Like everything connects to something else and there's nothing that's insignificant. And I thought that was really cool. And it was neat that it, it blended like the adventure and the mystery. There's like just enough of every element that it was like very satisfying at the end to be like, I figured out all of these things, but they've also gone on a really cool adventure. They've had some laughs. Like I think it was a good mix of different elements. And, and I think that really keeps you going through as a reader, especially as a kid. Yeah. Although I will say I, I do, and this is in any book and this was true of this book too, but I kind of always get lost with too much geography writing. Like they went up the hill and there was a cascade of rocks and they went to the left of it and then climbed up four yards that way. Like yeah. I always get lost with that stuff. Someone zero and Stanley are doing that near the end. I was struggling to keep the geography straight in my head. He was obsessed with the mountain, like the mountain that was shaped like the thumb. And they kept talking about like the God's thumb mountain, like the thumb mountain. And I kept being like, okay, I understand. But that I gave each other a thumbs up in case you didn't understand. So they really, Uh, I loved the thumbs up. I think my favorite part about this whole book was the relationship between Stanley and zero. It was Mm -hmm. so nice. They really like, it could have gone any way with them really. Like Stanley, like any kid I'm sure has trouble adjusting to this like new society that he's a part of at the camp. And it's interesting that he and zero latch onto each other. But by the end of the book, their friendship is so sweet. And the fact that they like kept giving each other thumbs ups. I just had this like image in my head of these like two cute little kids being like, yeah, we did it. Yeah, we did it. Look at us. Mission accomplished. So sweet. The whole part where they strike this deal, which, you know, obviously it really blows up in their faces, but the fact that Zero admits that he doesn't know how to read and Stanley's like, well, I can help you. And Zero is like, I love digging holes. I'm really good at digging holes. So they agree to this arrangement where Zero will help Stanley with his holes so that Stanley can rest up to teach, which I thought that was kind of funny that he was like, I like have to save my energy so I can be a good teacher. I thought that was kind of cute. And like, you know, the currency between kids is so interesting. And then this whole idea that like the other campers were challenging them and like, well, this deal isn't fair. Obviously there were some racial undertones there too. Like they were accusing Stanley of playing a slave master, which he was like, well, I, I thought we just struck a bargain and it seemed fair. And I thought that was interesting too. It was like, you know, no, he just, he thought that this was reasonable. Like he wanted to help Zero. Zero wanted to help him. And maybe it was as simple as that, but I thought that was like a really cool start to their relationship. Totally. And I don't think Stanley is lying, but I will say that teaching energy is a bit of a stretch. I agree. That made me laugh. What's the difference between teaching energy and hole digging energy, really? And he kept repeating it too, which every, like, you'd be like, I have to have my energy for for teaching. And then I think, we get it. We know. Right. It's exhausting to teach somebody to read. And then he's like, maybe I don't need to have Mm -hmm. energy to teach. And then he was like, oh, but like, what about zero's energy to learn? Like, yeah, now we're really, now we're really getting somewhere, Stanley, because if you need energy to teach someone to read, then zero sure as hell needs energy to to learn how because it's kind of hard to learn to read. What did you think about the adults at the camp? Because Mr. Pendanski, I couldn't figure out like at moments I was like, oh, he's so nice. He had made all these speeches about accountability. And like, I know you guys aren't really bad kids. You just made some mistakes. But then at moments he was such an asshole. Like he really confused me. I, I then kind of had this idea. Maybe he's just this like bumbling guy who like can't figure out where his loyalties lie. Pendanski, I kind of saw, yeah, as like a very lost 25 year old man who doesn't have a lot going on for him. That's true. He probably is like 25, which is so weird because when I read it, 
as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, he's so old. Like, what a grown-up. And I'm like, no, you're right. He's probably younger than I am now. Yeah. He's probably, like, just out of college and, like, needed something to do for the summer and was like, I guess I'll go work at this camp. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't imagine him not being dissimilar to, like, what uh, the 25-year-old that never moved out of your hometown who, like, kind of works at the gas station or the liquor store now. But uh, it's it's an extreme version of that in Texas. There's something about the warden that was sort of complicated for me because at first, when we find out that she's a woman, because, you know, in the in the first few chapters when they're just talking about the warden and we haven't met her yet, they never use pronouns. So you never know if it's a man or a woman. And I don't know what this says about me, but I was like, oh, well, warden's probably a man because I think that's how so many of the kids' books that I read growing up were. Like, anybody who was a warden or a person with that kind of power and maybe that sort of, like, negative vibe or, like, being mean. I was like, oh, this is probably, like, a big, tough man. And then you find out that the warden is actually a woman. And at first I was like, yeah, like, that was so cool of him. And then she turns out to be, like, terrifying and awful. But I will say, like, it was very, like, progressive and cool at this time in the 90s when I do think that most characters of this nature probably were men. It's kind of cool that, like, the woman got to be the villain. It was a nice double twist because I think I, like you, like most readers, probably went the same thing, uh, had the same reaction of, like, oh, it's okay. No, it's not okay. And uh, and this goes to show that women can be monsters, too. Good Fine. for them. Good for us, you know? Yes. Time's up on not being a monster. <laughs> That's the kind of manuary I want, is to talk about women being monsters. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's that's, that's how you close out this wonderful <laughs> podcast. And he was like, I don't remember anything about the last episode, but the guest kept screaming women are monsters <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, I think that's that'll look good for both of us. <laughs> Do you think you would have liked this book as a kid? I know you didn't read it until you were in college, but reflecting on I it think, now, do you think you would have? Uh, yes, I think so, just because I liked his other, like the sideways stories from Wayside School stuff. So it seemed to, uh, Wayside School was much zanier and lighter, obviously, but I think given that stuff that I probably would have connected to the voice a little bit. Like, I, I mean, do you think this is his best book? I'm not even sure, like, how this falls in his canon. I think that it's probably gotten the most hype over the years. It's interesting. I get a lot of notes from listeners about Wayside Story, Wayside, Sideways Stories. Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Wayside School. That's a mouthful. Um, I get a lot of notes from listeners about that. People really want me to cover those books, and I don't really have strong memories of reading them. Like, I think maybe I read one or two of them, but... They're very episodic. They're not, like, novels. They're, yeah. like, teeny tiny short stories. Yeah, and that just, like, wasn't really my thing. I don't think mm-hmm. I ever got into them, but it's. I think people have, like, a much bigger nostalgic attachment to those, and maybe it's because they read them when they were younger, potentially. I just feel like Holtz has gotten, like, so much pop culture love, maybe because of the movie. I mean, the movie did really well. It got great reviews. It grossed $71 million. Like, it was a success. Obviously, Shia helped that, um, but mm-hmm. I think... It's probably his best known work just because of the movie. But I don't I don't know in terms of sales. And I know he's written other books, but I don't think any of them have been nearly as successful as Holes or the Sideways Stories series. But I mean it's Did you read the sequel to this book ever? I didn't, and I didn't know there was one until I was doing the research this morning. Did you read it? Did you have to read it for your class? No, it was a shock to me as well. The way they uh describe it is like now we follow armpit or something. It didn't seem that appealing to me, unfortunately. Unfortunately, maybe I'm being myopic, though. Maybe you just don't see Armpit for all of the great qualities that he has. 
And if there's no monster women in this one, what, what's in it for me, honestly? I'm out, really. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> there were also, I was reading, there were a few, like, other kind of, I don't know, like, series extensions that came out with the movie. There was something about, like, Stanley Yelnatz's survival guide. Like, they tried to do all of these other things when the movie came out. Um, and I'm sure that brought, like, a lot of kids in the early aughts into the series. And, like, I mean, my sister was writing book reports about it in, in the mid-aughts, so it's lived on. And I think the fact that in 2012 it was ranked at number six among all-time children's novels, that's pretty telling. Number six seems so high to me, and maybe this maybe it's just because it wasn't one of my personal favorites as a kid, and I still feel like it's not one of my personal favorites having read it again. But number six feels so high. Like, in terms of every children's novel ever written, yeah, like it. I like it, but I don't know. I don't know what the right expectations are for children's not. I mean, what's number one on that list? I don't know offhand. I need to. It's funny because I always am like, this list is referenced a lot on Wikipedia when I'm researching for these episodes. But you're only looking at one individual entry on the list each time. Exactly. <laughs> so someday I'm going to find number one and I'm going to be like, oh, finally. In my head, it's probably Harry Potter, but I'm, I could definitely be wrong. Sure. Well, I mean, this just felt strangely. I don't know if it's because of the length or something, but it almost felt, it felt super well done and it felt like I really liked the characterization and the color and the backstory and stuff, but there's a way in which it also felt disposable too. So that's why I'm wondering like if six isn't super high. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the, maybe the first five are all Harry Potter and then it's like, oh, you get a nod to at number six. I guess so. That's what, that would be my choice. You know, I'm looking at this list now. It's a poll. So Oh. So it, it it's maybe it's like an audience pick. That's like, so surprising to me. Number six is high. Yeah, but kids, you're stupid, no, Alan. Sure. You're you right. Know. Yeah, you were a kid once, so was I. We yeah. were idiots. Small brains, all of that's us. Right. One thing I'll say about the end of this book was that I think justice was served to everybody, and I think that's one of my favorite things in kids' books, and it happens in a lot of the ones that I've read for the podcast, where like everybody pretty much gets what they deserve, and that's so not something that we get in like adult pop culture. Like you don't really see it that often in TV, movies, books. Like usually, there's one person that gets away, or one person that like slides out of things with a consequence that maybe isn't harsh enough somebody escapes somehow i love books for kids where like it's tied up so nicely and everybody gets their due yeah i mean uh say for like a paddington 2 post-credit sequence yeah it's not something that happens a lot these days and i know how much you love a paddington 2 well i was just thinking about justice and the prison system and yes the, you know this book and that movie have that in common and it is like a very tidy okay these people got pardoned and then this guy went to jail and these people got out as well. Like it's very comprehensive in its, in its resolution. I also liked how the camp became a Girl Scout camp. Yes. Very ironic because of the way, was it Pendansky or Mr. Sir was, uh, was dogging on it saying like, what are you, Girl Scouts? I think Pendansky, AKA mom, cause they all have nicknames and they all call him mom. I think mom was always like calling them Girl Scouts and making, you know, making that a big insult. And then in the end, the Girl Scouts are the ones that take over. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I wonder if Holes kind of had a hand in shaping internet culture as we know it now, where a celebrity will post a photo, and if they're a celebrity of a certain stature, the first 30 replies will be mom. The I chief. wonder there's a connection there for all the moms that Ariana Grande gets these days. We owe it all to Holes, really. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was getting at. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think we really do. So usually the question that I ask toward the end of these episodes with guests is, did reading this book as an adult ruin it for you or make it more meaningful to you? Did you love it all the more? But since you didn't read it as a kid, um, I'm still interested. Like in the intervening years between college and now, on this reread, did you like it more? Did you like it less? How did it hold up? And and why do you think you had that experience? Well, back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, I think I think it highlighted for me. I think there's certain like technical aspects that I probably enjoyed or appreciated more about the way that it executed certain things. But I think a big takeaway for me was the difference in and how I read stuff, and hopefully not in a cynical way, but just a difference between processing something 2007 and 2018, where I'm just so almost like scared or on alert for stuff of like, wait, is this bad? Is this horrible? Do I need to say something about this? Is this good? This is good, right? And just kind of like that uh, low hum of call-out culture coursing through my veins. <laughs> like every time I read something or ingest something to make sure it's actually okay. And and if I brought it up to someone else, they wouldn't say, well, don't you think it's messed up how, you know, they called him mom and, you know, they were implying that moms aren't strong, you know, like something like that. That could be like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I didn't say that was bad, you know. <laughs> so it kind, of, uh, it kind of brought that out in me. But overall, I thought it was like a really – and, and and the difference is I was impressed with myself with how well I read it because we talked about this like months ago doing it for the podcast and I read it two days ago in one day. <laughs> well, you told me you were like, I feel like I need a lot of time because I'm not a huge reader. So I'm scheduling it way in advance. But yeah, I mean, you made it happen quickly. And I did. <laughs> in the end. So I know you said you're not a huge reader or that you don't read a lot or, or very quickly, but we always are trying to collect like book recommendations from our guests. So is there a book that you've read recently or, or even in sort of the not so distant past um, that you would recommend to our listeners that they should be adding to their list? It doesn't have to be a kid's book, obviously. Uh, yeah. You know, I read a book recently called Interior States by the author Megan O'Giblin. She's this writer outside of Wisconsin or in Wisconsin. And uh, she has a really special voice and a really interesting take on a variety of things. It's a collection of essays, but it's just super sharp and well-observed and gentle and talking about things like Midwestern Christian culture and things like hell and uh, talking about the way we live in 2018 and, and kind of the loops we get trapped in. So I would really recommend that book to anybody. I think it's so terrific. Well, I'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to Holes. I'm also going to make sure I link out to your podcast, Kevin Good Christian Fun, which is a favorite of mine. We had your co-host, Caroline, on for episode 10 of SSR. We talked about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So hopefully a lot of my listeners have already found their way to GCF by now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was a, I listened to the episode. I thought it was great. And I thought, well, can't do that on the podcast anymore. Thanks a lot. And are you doing Maisel Goy season two? I've been on the lookout for that. Yes. By the time this comes out, we'll release the first four or five episodes of it. But as of recording this, it'll come out next Monday. Okay. And that's still under the Gilmore Guys feed. I just want to make sure mm-hmm. I know where to tell everybody to look. Because if you're a fan of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as I am, that's also a great one to listen to where you break down all the episodes. And I feel like I become a better consumer of 
TV and movies since I started listening to your shows. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. Yeah, Maisel's super fun because uh, there's really no reason to do it at this point. <laughs> so it's only fun because it's not like we're talking about this under-discussed show that people need to watch. It's like, it's got a billion Emmys and everyone has Amazon. Like, you'll find it and you'll, you, you and your mom will probably like it. It's great. So it's really just like, a fun discussion and a way to hang out with my co-host Al Sweaterland and all of our fun guests. Well, I'm psyched that the new season is going to be up next week because I was looking for it. We just started binging the second season last week. Um, so I'll look out for that and I'll make sure that our listeners have the links to it too. Thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to read holes. I know it was a little homework around the holidays um, and for being our Manuary finale. It was so fun talking to you. Oh, it was great talking to you. Such such an honor and a pleasure. And all women are monsters. Oh no! I gosh, I told Oops. myself I wouldn't say that. Uh, no, this this podcast was super fun. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.